0: and welcome to Voiceworks Sound Business. I'm Jim Salverson and for today's podcast I'm joined by Steph Guerrero to find out the five things that he has learnt from his career in audio. Now, you probably know Steph best for his work on the lockdown success that was socially distanced sports bar that he does with comedians Ellis James and Mike Bubbins if you don't know that you should it's a brilliant podcast but Steph has a long career in audio working for the BBC making documentaries some of which you'll hear about on today's podcast and also some really interesting insights on how the Apple podcast charts work and visibility of podcasts within there. Just a pre-warning that there is some industrial language in this one, which is unusual for VoiceWorks Sound Business, but if you do listen to Socially Distant Sports Bar, you'll also know that that's just par for the course. You've been warned. Great chat this, really insightful. Five things I've learned from audio with Stefan Guerrero. Welcome to VoiceWorks Sound Business. Pleasure to have you on. Lovely to be here. And there. thank you for sharing your list of the five things that you learned from your time working <laughs> in audio. So to say, you've got a slightly different background to some of the people we've had doing this list before. So it's great to get your view and the five things you've learned. I'm sure we'll dig a bit into your background and how you got to where you are and the projects you've worked on as we go through this list of five. But hmm. you can kick us off. What's your number one?
1: Um, It is really hard. I listened to a few of the previous ones, I listened to Pete Donaldson's yeah. one, and I was like, right, okay, I don't want to repeat anything that anybody else has done. So I was kind of going through it and going, ah, he said that. <laughs> ah, come on. So these are five of the things, okay. I guess, I've learned, rather than the five. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but the first one, I reckon, is learning everything. So I started out as, I guess, a broadcast journalist. So I did like a broadcast journalism post-grad And then went to the BBC as a sports reporter. And it's quite easy just to do that then Mm. forever. But I was sort of fascinated by, okay, if I've recorded that interview, how does it then get edited? How do the clips then come out of that? And this was like in the era of quarter-inch tape. And, you know, reel-to-reel recorders and ewers and all the kind of stuff that if you're above 40 or if you worked at a radio station that was mildly archaic, then you will know what I mean by all that stuff. So learning how that worked, but then learning the digital stuff, learning how a producer did their job, learning how a presenter did a job better, Mm. you know, even what the weather guy was doing or the travel guy, just learning all that stuff and trying to pick it all up, partly to make yourself unsackable. Which was always my fear. (laughs) So like, you get, you get these rounds of redundancies and you think, right, okay, if I can do all those things and I can learn what the social media team are doing and I can learn what the website writers Mm. are doing and maybe I can learn how to use a camera, then maybe I'm less sackable. I mean, still, you know, if you mess up on here, you're still sackable, but maybe less sackable. So it was kind of like, it was, it was a belt and braces thing, but then the industry kind of changed in that Mm. way anyway. I think that any advice I would give to anyone getting into it now, which I teach up in Cardiff Met in sport media now, and it's one of the things with the students now where someone will turn up and they want to be, I don't know, a football commentator, or they want to write about rugby. And you go, that's cool, but can you do these eight other things as well? Because now you're probably not going to get a long-term contract. You're going to get a short-term contract and you're going to bounce for a little while. Mm. And if you can't pay your rent for two months because you didn't bother to learn that particular bit of the Adobe software, then you're hamstringing yourself. So that would be the one big thing for me is just learn everything. Immerse yourself in it.
0: I 100% agree with this. And it's the bit of advice I give to people who want to get into the industry, whether it's radio or audio, is become a jack of all trades to a certain extent. Yeah, you can specialize in certain areas, but make sure you know everything. And I agree that it, A, makes it much easier to find gainful employment if you've got all these different skill bases. But the other side of that, I think, Mm. and I'd be interested to know whether you agree with this, is it helps you understand how other people do their jobs. So if you're a producer but you've been a presenter that helps you empathize with what they're doing in their work if you've worked in sales and you're a producer then it kind of like it helps you understand the business as a whole and then thus makes you easier to work with as an individual as well
1: absolutely if you if you don't know so if you're just like on-air talent which i Hey, it's a stupid phrase. But if you're (laughs) on-air talent, like everyone else isn't talented, just the one who can speak is talented. So daft. Um, But if you don't understand the constraints on the producer, sort of the other side of the glass, then how do you know why they're telling you that? You're thinking, oh, I'm doing a really good bit right now. And the next track can probably wait for another two minutes because I'm nailing this. Mm. But that producer knows something you don't. So if that advert... Doesn't kick in when it's supposed to kick in, then there'll be someone pissed off about that somewhere further down the chain, and mm. it's all those little interlinking bits. Like you say, if you've never worked in sales, you don't understand the responsibilities of or the you know the reasons behind those sponsorships and those adverts within it, whether it's within podcasting or within radio. Y- you've got to learn it all, and sometimes you've also got to cover other people's asses as well when they make mistakes. So yeah. if you're working with a studio engineer and they cock up and they press the wrong thing, I've heard loads of radio presenters just throw them under a bus. And you think, ah, that guy now thinks you're a dick. And (laughs) your working relationship is going to be incredibly fraught as a result of that. Or Mm. at some point they're going to throw you under a bus (laughs) quite Mm. rightly as well. So just covering for them and just going, ah, you know, making out it was your mistake. That's perfectly cool. Cause then they're on board with you. They know that you've got their back. Um, I think that's massively important as well.
0: So how did that kind of broad skill set that you set yourself up with in your early career, how did that set you up for the the beginnings of Socially distanced Sports Bar, which was born out of lockdown? It was a project that came out of there as mm. probably, I imagine, grown beyond your expectations at this point. So <laughs> how did that kind of skill set feed into your ability to get that off the ground early
1: doors? Do you know what? That's interesting. I think if I hadn't have known how to do all the bits, then there's no way you could do that without the backup of something else, if that makes sense. Mm. So I, you know, I worked at the BBC for 20 years, so completely institutionalised. And then left in, ooh, let me think, probably November of 2019. A little bit of gardening leave here and there, but we'll call it November. And then joined Cardiff Met to be a lecturer. And then within three months of working at the uni, all of a sudden lockdown kicks in. And mm. you can't do the face-to-face teaching. So everything everything just changes. But I wanted like this outlet for something that I could do. And I think that if you try and get something commissioned at that point, everyone's panicking within the industry because they're trying to work out how they keep their radio station on it. Because mm. maybe they don't know how all the tech works and they haven't tried it out. Or they've never really wanted to allow a presenter to be at home because it gets rid of a little bit of control. Um, So they're all working really hard on that side of stuff. So if you don't do it yourself, you're not going to do it. So I think that the ability to know not just how to make a podcast, but how to publish it, how to make it exist Mm -hmm. in the real world, how do you get in touch with Apple, how do you get in touch with Spotify, all of those little bits of knowledge to get yourself up on those little lists that they put up, you know, the recommended and all that kind of stuff. If you don't know how to do that, Or if you're not willing to go, hi, I don't know how to do this. Someone help me. Then you're really leaving yourself exposed. I think our ability to put that up within – I think it might have been within 10 days of lockdown starting, I think. But someone will correct me on that and tell me I'm wrong. But in my (laughs) mind, at least, it it was 10 days sort of into the whole thing. We managed to get episode one up. It's not brilliant, but it's there and it existed. And we had this crappy logo that I managed to pull together myself – because I knew it needed a logo. I didn't have time to find anyone to do it. So it's just like, that'll do. It's like a red background and some clip art on it. It was awful. But it existed enough that yeah. someone who was a graphic designer went, that's crap, have this. <laughs> but again, I still didn't know about, because I worked at the BBC, I still didn't know about advertising. So I still didn't understand how any of that side of the business worked. So the actual business bit of it. Sure. So I was lucky that I was working with two guys where I went, look, we ain't getting paid partly because I can't afford to pay and managed to spin that into, but it's not It's not about the money, guys. It's about the art, right? Everyone everyone loves this. It's about art. This is about having a project. Um, and that worked, which was great. It helps that, you know, we all knew each other. So there was a level of trust that, look, if this is just something we do for two weeks during lockdown, that's fine. And if it just dies, it's fine. But it's, we thought it was a good idea. But mm-hmm. in terms of financing it, again, I wanted to know all about that. So it's the same sort of theory of learning everything I don't want to go to, I don't know, one of the big companies and go, cool, can you sort out our adverts for us? And I also thought that a podcast would sound better if it had an advert on it. So in right. that sort of 10 <laughs> days before we started, well, A 52 were the ones who did everyone. So every yeah. podcast I listened to that had something to do with comedy, there was Beer 52 on it. So I just found an email address and got in touch with them, and they got in touch straight away and just went, look, we can't give you money, but if you use this code we'll pay you such and such amount for every subscription we make. And because it was locked down at the time, it actually worked quite well. Yeah. Um, and there are some people still tied into those. <laughs> Myself included, because I can't find out how you cancel it. But, <laughs> but just having an advert on it made it sound more professional was my thinking. Yeah. And then okay. learning about that side of the business and learning about, you know, host read ads, learning about digital ad insertion. It's all stuff that three years ago I didn't understand and I didn't know about. And I think that, that ability then to learn it all and then learn when you're in a good contract and when you're not in a good contract is really, really important to run in something yourself. Well, There's a great,
0: if you build it, they will come mentality and kind of upskilling yourself as you go. It's huge lessons there for anyone who, particularly in the world where the bottom rungs of the ladder don't exist in media anymore. It's like, it's they're really mm. valuable lessons in terms of taking those steps up. You mentioned commissioning there and that kind of brings us on to thing you learnt number two, which is?
1: <laughs> uh, if a commissioner does not like your idea, it does not make that idea shit. <laughs> Which <laughs> I, I think it's. Have you have you listened? There's a podcast called Dead Eyes. Have you ever listened to that? No. So it's about this actor, and he went for a role in Band of Brothers, and he got down to it's your part. It's just a you know bit part role in the back of shot. Might have one line maybe, but he has to re audition for it because Tom Hanks is kind of in charge of the production of that particular episode he's not sure about him so he auditions in front of tom hanks and then gets chucked off the part and the feedback he gets is that he's got dead eyes so this kind of filters down to him and sort of affects his sort of sense of whether he's any good as an actor and there'll be a million people who will listen to this who've had feedback along those lines from some commissioner who doesn't think your idea is amazing And the whole podcast series that he goes through is about him sort of learning that... I think you know he's a comedian as well, so it's very tongue-in-cheek. But he's sort of learning that that opinion shouldn't impact on his opinion of himself or his opinion of his own abilities. And I think that commissioners haven't got time to give a shit about whether you get offended or feel sad because your idea gets turned down. They're just too busy. They're busy hitting the commissions that they need to hit and working on those through a, through to a point where they're broadcastable or mm-hmm. where they like them or where they're the biggest podcast in the country, whatever it might be. So your little idea that you thought was amazing that you've spent hours and hours and hours writing through and putting a treatment together and you stick it in front of them and they go, nah. There's a million different factors why that has happened and they might have had a bad day and they mm-hmm. might have got a bunch of things they've just been told by their boss that they've got to commission, and therefore your idea goes. And that takes a long time to get your head around, because certainly from my perspective, I just couldn't see it sometimes. I'd put in these ideas, and I'd be like, well, why on earth aren't you making this? It's brilliant. Mm. And that's, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a huge element of arrogance involved in that as well, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But, you know, I think I think most people who have an idea think that their idea is ace. Otherwise, why would you progress it from the idea point
0: if you if you put an idea into a commissioning process you do think it's great otherwise you wouldn't be putting that idea yeah. forward in the first place yeah. so if that is then knocked back how mm. do you take that if you get feedback if you get feedback which isn't always the case yeah. within commissioning rounds do you go yeah nope this is perfect this is my idea i love it or do you take on board yeah. that feedback and go all right well maybe there's some tweaks that can be made here i mean how do you balance that
1: that's interesting I think that you always need to be open to the fact that your arrogance may get in the <laughs> way of the idea. So your your absolute self-confidence that this is bloody brilliant might be the problem with the project as well. I think you have mm-hmm. to be open to that as an idea. But that comes with time as well. When you're 23 and you think you've got the answer to, I don't know, I'd be the best person on the Radio 1 breakfast show. I wouldn't. And I wouldn't have been when I was 23. But just as an example... You've got to be open to the fact that someone somewhere goes, no, Greg's better. But can you take that feedback when you're 23? Probably not. Mm. So it comes with time and it comes with rejection as well and learning to deal with that. Because also, you might be the best person for that. You might be. But someone, some gatekeeper somewhere has decided not to open that gate for whatever reason. Could Mm. be contractual, could be demographic based, who knows. But you might not be wrong. I think is a really important point as well. I think that not necessarily burying your head in the sand, but you take on board the advice and you look at it and you go, okay, this. is and again, if you get feedback, which doesn't always happen within the industry, I don't think, but if you, if you get some feedback, it really is worth looking at it. But it doesn't mean they're right because they're just people. And that's the one thing that I don't think I understood quite early on would be, well, they're in charge of it. They make this whole station or they make this whole series of podcasts. They're right. That, that was the bit I couldn't deal with, mm. was they're the gatekeeper, therefore they are correct. And yeah. once you get your head into the fact that they're just a man or a woman who has had a good or a bad day up to that point, they're going to go and have a cup of coffee in the same way that you are in five minutes. And, you know, certainly at radio stations that I've worked at, they commission everything. Mm. So they're an expert in drama, in comedy, in light entertainment, in sport, in, you know, debate shows. And they're not, are they? Because mm. you can't be. You know, I'd love to think that I've got some areas of expertise within the industry. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. That's, again, for other people to decide on. But I haven't got expertise in everything. I, I couldn't, you know, like Nikki Campbell's phone-in show – I wouldn't be the right person to give them any feedback on that. But if I was in a commissioning role, all of a sudden I would be. And that doesn't make any logical sense to me. So once you get your head around that, you just go,
0: that's cool. I guess that kind of thick skin is applicable when you're putting yourself into the world anyway. And one of the beautiful things about podcasting is there's this, democratization where anyone can do it and anyone can put themselves and their content out into the world but at the same time you're throwing yourself Mm. into the cesspit that is the internet and you are going to get feedback whether you like it or not on what you're doing (laughs) and i guess from the same point of view as you're talking about like you kind of need a thick skin and a confidence to go through a commissioning round you actually kind of need a thick Mm. skin and a confidence to put yourself (laughs) on the internet in any capacity too
1: a hundred percent if I didn't have a thick skin and I read some of the, like even when I was doing other podcasts, not just social distance sports, bar, but other ones that I've done, you read some of the Apple reviews and you think, what? what why did you spend time doing that? Why have you given me one star and basically said I'm a thick idiot or <laughs> that my voice is great? Or you go through all of these things. I think my favorite one was, what is the point of this guy? And <laughs> he's just like, wow. If you, if you take that sort of thing personally, that's, that guy goes really deep. But he just can't. Who cares? Like, mm. But it's it's fun sometimes to call people on stuff. But I've tried to stop doing that now. But I think that any kind of feedback you get, you, again, same sort of thought process of that commissioner is just a person. A lot of the time on social media, those people aren't particularly happy people. And you get into debates with them, or I certainly used to, I don't anymore – But if you take a step back and you go, it's seven o'clock at night. Why is this person that exercised by the fact that I'm shit at my job? And why do I care? If I was walking down the street to get a bus and someone just went, oh, Steph, your podcast's shit and I don't like you, I wouldn't then stop and have a conversation with them. Mm. I wouldn't then engage in the process. I think that guy's probably had a bad day, but also probably thinks my podcast is shit and that's okay. (laughs) I'm all right with that. (laughs) I've always thought it was a
0: very weird scenario. You'd never go into a supermarket and have a go at a cashier for being really terrible at their job. But for some reason, putting in, the, in putting yourself in the media kind of gives people that license to do that. Let's move on to your third item, Steph.
1: Okay. This is an interesting one because even when I was writing it, I wasn't sure about the phraseology of it. So it's probably one that needs a bit of a deep dig into it. It's about having really high standards and demanding those from everybody you work with. But covering their asses I kind of, sort of spoke about covering their asses a little bit earlier on. But I think that the high standards thing is really important. And I think that people don't like to talk about it now in case it comes across as arrogant or I think it can border on bullying with some personalities. Right. And I think that that's where the difficulty comes. So I would always want to work with people who have a similar approach to the work that I have where that's not quite good enough. That edit isn't quite good enough. So mm-hmm. let's go back and do it two more times because it's not smooth enough. And I think that making audio documentaries for a little bit of my career kind of gave me that almost, it, it borders on obsessional. Yeah. And just making sure there are these little bits, these little snippets that work. So if you, you know, you've put in a helicopter sound effect but the helicopter sound effect is 360 and the rest of the recording isn't. So that's not the right bit to do then. So it's finding these, and people will think that you're probably a knob or probably that they don't want to work as hard as you want to work. Mm-hmm. And there is a balance between the two things. I'm not saying for a moment that having high standards means that everybody has to be obsessional. But I think that working in a room or in an office or on a project with people who have the same level of, No, this has got to be good because that bit's good. So if you've put the effort into the recording and I'm not putting the effort into the editing or the person who is writing the copy that goes on the podcast description or the episode description isn't putting the same level in that you've put into the rest of the project, I think they're letting the project down. Does that make sense or does that sound
0: like... Yeah, it does. I I guess my question to follow up would be, how do you work with people who don't have the same exacting standards as you do? Because That's really interesting. You, you can't always choose these scenarios. Or do you just not? Do you mm. just kind of go, well, this isn't good enough. We're not clicking.
1: Let's move on. I think that now you can do that. I think that when you've had a level of experience, you can do it. It's not always the right thing to do, though, is mm-hmm. what I would say as well. I don't, I don't think the backing out of a project because other people aren't hitting what you're hitting I'm coming across really arrogantly. I'm trying, I don't mean it to. I just think that having those sort of layers of standard, I think, is really important to a project. Yeah. But I think you can engender that in someone as well. I don't think that that is necessarily a come on, guys, you've got to do it like this. I don't think it's like that. That's not the way I mean it. What I mean is, if we're going out to record and we're going as a couple of people, it's really important where that microphone is placed. It's really mm. important. If you were doing it as a TV documentary, you wouldn't just stick a camera down and go, fuck it, that'll do. You wouldn't just put a light somewhere and go, fuck it, that'll do. But within audio, for some reason, that does happen a lot, where the microphone's slightly off where it should be. I heard, um, uh, I listened to a podcast the other day about the Chris Evans Breakfast Show, back when he was on Radio 1. There's a series with the other guys who were involved in that, talking about it. Yeah,
0: I know the one you're talking about. It's brilliant. It's really cool, isn't it? I can't it? what it's called, though. But yeah, it's brilliant. I think I'll, I'll it's breaking in the breakfast. Show notes. That's right. That's exactly what it is. I'll put a link to I think that it's in the show notes
1: because it's and well worth listening to. I, I, it's it's a, it's really good because if you want an insight, and again, I think the, probably my wider point about standards probably comes into Evans's personality and whether that kind of always lands within a group scenario. So that's probably a, a counterpoint to yeah. what I'm saying as well. If people want to explore the other side of that or both sides of it, I guess. I think that there's a bit there where Dan, who was the the sound man, talks about an interview that they got with George Michael, and they're two minutes into this interview, and it's just Chris and George Michael in a room, and Dan's the only other person allowed within the vicinity, because George Michael is busy being George Michael, so he doesn't want loads of people around. Dan is recording this, and he realises after about two questions that he hasn't got the mics in the right place. They're, They're not right. So he has to make that decision then of whether you come in or whether you don't come in and whether you – and he comes in, he goes, I'm really, really sorry. I haven't got this right. And he moves the microphone and George Michael says to him, well done. And that's the kind of thing that I mean is those standards from people are – so if if that interview doesn't turn out right, first of all, you're going to get in trouble with Evans, which – you don't want in life. Um, then you're going to, you know, George Michael's going to think that you're shit at your job or is going to be really disappointed mm. as a result. And I think that those bits are really, really important and people see them as a, yeah, we got the interview. Cool. But where was all those tiny little details? Where was the microphone? If you're just going out with one mic, did you have it different distances from the mouths of the people talking related to their bloody volume and the amount of people who don't think yeah, about yeah. that stuff is fascinating? And you can teach that. And I don't think that, that is. I don't think that's a particularly exacting standard to ask for, personally, but if someone's then gone to those levels then, though, it's it's creating the atmosphere within a team where you go, right, he's Mm. tried really hard out there recording. When you're now editing this, you need to have that level of care and attention to the detail. And I think that that is achievable within a harmonious department without Mm. picking on people, without outing bad performance, because I don't think that's the way of doing any of these things, Mm. um, without picking on individuals or, like you say, alienating them or pulling them out of the group, because so I don't think that's necessarily the way either.
0: It's getting people to ask the question, is this as good as I can make it? Is this as good as it can possibly be? And if the answer is yes, great. If your answer is no, then why? What's what's the blocker? What's the challenge? What's the change you can make?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I work now with... so The, the, the three of us who work on the Social Distance Sports Bar, it sounds like... It's three people who've just turned up and turned on microphones. And that's the key. If it didn't sound like that, it wouldn't work. But it's not like that. With the three of us who work together, we've all got different skills and different abilities. So I would never say to Mike, for example, you have to edit this podcast and you have to do it like this. Or say to Ellis, get that episode published. Because that's not their skill sets. So they come to the table every single week fully prepped and ready to be, they've they watched, so we look at a lot of sports clips, we watch documentaries, and we read books. They do that element, but they find the funny in that, whereas that's not necessarily my skill set. My skill set is to kind of guide the conversation Mm -hmm. and do the admin side of stuff. So I'm bringing that to the table, and if I'm not doing that to the standards that they like, then that is it's a a two-way process. Sure. Three-way process because it's three of us, (laughs) but if they're bringing to the table what they're bringing, it's not going to be the same skill sets that everyone's going to have that have to be at that level, but everyone has to bring it to that level for it to work.
0: Let's move on to your fourth thing you learned, and I think you've got a really interesting and quite unique and informed take on this one, so I'm interested to hear what you've got to say about it.
1: (laughs) So it, it, it kind of ties into a little bit about the social media stuff we were talking about earlier. But I've broadened it out a bit as well. So awards, reviews and chart positions mean bugger all is my fourth one. And it's something that, it's something that probably came to me quite late <laughs> in my career. And I think it's really important because the award side of things is a start point. I started making audio documentaries. Oh, let me think, probably between 2012 and now. So, started working on that side of the industry, and you get really engrossed in those as projects, and you get really into them, and some of them were good, and I had some of them for awards, and some of those awards I won, and some of those awards I didn't win, some of those awards you didn't get nominated for, and some of those awards you came second in. Mm. and then you sit back and you think, "What's that about?" And why is it important? So I worked a lot within sport. So I would be putting a documentary that perhaps I'd made on my sofa in my spare time around my real job. And it would be up against five live sports coverage for the year. And you're like, well, how, how can that work? How can, <laughs> how can I be disappointed about not beating the thing that's got Premier League on it? Because mm. <laughs> it's that's not a race, it's not a competition. And then you have to go back and you go, well, is any kind of, I think it's going to sound wanky, but is any kind of art form a competition? Probably not. Yeah. Because it probably, if you're sat there at the Oscars and you're, I don't know, a, a comedy, for example, that has a comedy actor won an Oscar for a comedy role in the last 50 years? No, hmm. because it's it's not seen as a comparable skill set for whatever reason. I just think that they are pointless to get hung up about, Mm. but they do open a lot of doors. So being involved in the process is still important for your career a lot of the time. So if you have an ARIA or if you have a New York Radio Festival Award or working in Wales, as I've done a lot of my career, if you have a Celtic Media Award, those sort of things do open doors for you and might get you your next commission but you have to somewhere in your head have this reality that six people, the same way with the commissioners, you have to not give a shit about what they think. Mm. Six people have sat around a table, half listened to your thing, maybe you've listened to it for about three minutes, and gone eight, or gone seven, yeah. or gone ten, and the realities of that process are so flawed that you can't worry about it. You mm. really can't. It's easy to say having won some stuff. I think that's it. it. It's much easier
0: to say that. It's easier to say awards don't count when you have an award in the bank. Before, if you if you don't get to that process, that kind of, that desire for recognition is really hard to suppress.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think I massively had it. And I think that, you know, the year, it was great. I went up with, uh, so Ellis, who I work on the podcast with, I went up with two leads for the Arias one year. And that was the year that I made a documentary about uh, – uh, 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 it was about Wales at Euro 2016. So, you know, cracking story, cracking mm. football tale of them excelling and a lost to Five Life <laughs> to the whole of Five Life. And Ellis just turned to me and just went – it's a great story that he must have really fucked it up. <laughs> and he kind of just broke the tension <laughs> of that moment of me feeling a little bit sad. And he could obviously see that I was feeling a bit sad and he just thought, this would be funny. And then you just go, yeah, of course it doesn't fucking matter, does it? Because did I fuck it up? Maybe I did. But mm. you know, it was still a really good documentary and it was still good enough to be on that list of things. But even if it wasn't on the list of things, the value for that project... Isn't reliant on the extrinsic that you can't control. Yeah. Was I happy with all the edits? Was I was I happy with all the recording? All that bit, the bit that I pulled together is about a two minute section that I'm still not happy with within that project. But there, <laughs> there is that's more important to me than coming second. But now because I've won one since, yeah, if yeah. I hadn't have won one since, I probably wouldn't think that. Yeah, and that probably didn't land with me until I'd won one because that was always my aim and that was always i think since i saw that picture of danny baker and gaza and chris evans at the sonys when i was a kid and i was like that looks fucking ace (laughs) i don't know what that is but that looks fucking ace um that was probably my drive and then when i got one it was cool because the little project that i made beat tail end as a beat peter crouch and all that kind of stuff and you go oh cool Mm. People can see it, man. They can see what I do. Yeah, cool. But the truth of that is probably a documentary hadn't won in a long time, or probably someone from Wales hadn't won in some time, or maybe Peter Crouch had won the year before. I don't know. Or maybe Greg had won too much already that night and he was presenting that all of those things come into it. And yeah. until you open up that as a possibility in your head, that arrogant state of mind or that drive to achieve something will always be there. Mm. And it's only now having done that where you go, yeah, it doesn't mean that the one that comes second was rubbish. It doesn't mean that the time in whenever it was where you got nominated and you didn't come top three matters or the entries that you put in that didn't even get recognised. They're all equally valid. It doesn't matter. But it's this side of the wall, isn't it?
0: M- moving away from the recognition point a little bit, in terms of kind of reviews mm. and chart positions that you get in Apple and Spotify, I mean, th- there is a value yeah. there because the higher you are in the charts, the more visibility you have, the bigger your audience can get, mm. the more money you can make, all that kind of stuff. And I know you've done a little bit of playing yeah. about, a little bit of research in terms of gamification, in terms of getting into the charts and how you can use reviews, yeah. and publishing schedules and all that kind of thing to kind of maybe increase that
1: visibility in those chart positions. What have you learned from that process in the past? It's a really interesting thing. When I was working, I was working on a podcast called Scrum 5 when I was at the BBC. And for whatever reason, we never got in the top 200 of sports on Apple. And I was like, I don't get it. Cause like we've got a really good, you'd see all the figures coming in. Mm. You'd be like, well, we should, I I don't see, I I bet you that maybe a hundred of those aren't getting the downloads we're getting. So how are we not there? So I started messing around a little bit on my phone. You know, subscribing, unsubscribing, following, unfollowing, whatever it was, giving us good reviews. And then after a while, you start to see yourself just tip it in. I was like, Oh, there's something here. But uh, yeah, I, had, I had a proper job to make the bloody thing and you know, record <laughs> the thing. I have got time. I haven't got time to be click farming on my own. So I kind of parked the idea. And then when I joined Cardiff Met Uni, I was like, right, there's something in this that I think we can do as a project with the students, partly to engender this extrinsic, intrinsic value to your work in 20-year-olds so they don't go into the industry with the same mindset of mine, (laughs) going, please love me, please, please, (laughs) please think I'm great. (laughs) It it would be nice if they went in going, this is great, Mm. and then the external comes. So I got a bunch of our followers on the Social Distance Sports Bar, on social media to, like within a time frame, follow and unfollow us. Now, the logic being that we were, I can't remember where we were. If you have a look at my Twitter strands, you can find this. If you search for gamification and at Steph Guerrero, then you'd probably be able to find the whole thing. And I'll send you over a link to the LinkedIn thing that I'll, I'll pull together at the end of it. But I wanted us to move up the charts just to prove a theory. So I got people to subscribe and unsubscribe Leave us a five star review and also put use some positive language within that. Crucially, I didn't want them to download at all, right? So there was no increase to our listenership. I thought that was that was really important to the experiment, and it doesn't, you know, I work in academia now, and I know this doesn't stand up to any academic rigor. I get it, okay, but just as a, as a, as a, as a game, it was fun. So I got them to do that, and we got thousands of people to do that. And the pod just started to really, really push up the charts. And I thought it would go up maybe 10 places. And I'd be like, look, cool, this is good. And it kind of went up to like second in sport. And it was in, I don't know, the top 20 of all the podcasts within the UK. Whereas it wasn't in the top 200 when we started the experiment. Because we had the sort of pod that every week would go up to 100 and then back down again. But within that window that we did the project, we didn't publish any more audio. And we didn't increase our downloads one bit. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Our visibility rocketed. And what's interesting is since I've done that, the amount of people on LinkedIn who do this as a business who got in touch with me and said, can we work with you partly on your findings but partly to increase the visibility of your product? You give us this amount of money, we'll guarantee you this number of clicks. And I was like, well, yeah, can you guarantee me that number of downloads? And they were like, no, 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 no. I was like, Mm -hmm. can you you guarantee me that, you know, my adverts will be heard by more people? No, no, no. So what's the value of that? Visibility is a massive one. But is that important enough? Probably to a lot of people. And if you look at the Apple chart right now, how many of those are being click farmed by someone? I've no idea. Mm -hmm. But it's doable. I know that I know that it would increase the visibility of your podcast were you to do it. I'm not saying that any of them are, but there's 200 of them, so I don't think they can sue me. That's a wide enough group <laughs> people, it, I think. Um, I'm working on my libel. Um, but I, I, there, there must be some people who would do that. And does life matter to that amount? Not to me, but to some people, yes.
0: And it highlights the issues we have in terms of measuring podcasts as a whole be it directly through audiences be it via impressions be it listens downloads or be it via chart positions that there isn't a standardization Mm. and it's not it's not transparent enough we don't know how this stuff works and
1: the fact that it can be gamed in that way is a problem really oh absolutely and it was something that i had suspicions about when we when we started doing the social distance sports but like i say we did i had done a little bit of it with scrum five when i was working on that and one of the things we did in the first episode was I knew that ratings were really important for the visibility within Apple. So our theme music was done by James Dean Bradfield from the Maddox. So he did the sort of guitar music for us, and we created this character called the Secret Guitarist, and we said, right, okay, the only way you can guess who the Secret Guitarist is is by giving us a five-star review on Apple and Mm. writing in the comment the name of the guitarist you think it is. It's cheating a system. Of course it is. But it got us visibility early on. And those sort of levels of interaction really worked well for us. Mm. Should it have worked? No. Of course it shouldn't. That, that shouldn't be how our podcast became visible. But we found a way of doing it within those silly yeah. rules that exist. It's a good flex, that. James Dean Bradfield did my podcast theme music.
0: <laughs> That's very impressive. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> Let's move on to your last thing
1: you learned from your w- w- career in audio. It's something that I've learned probably over the last three years again, so probably since the start of lockdown. Podcasting is much more of a collegiate experience across the sector than working in radio or working in TV. And maybe some of that is down to the lack of transparency over who's doing well and who isn't. Mm. And the fact that I can console myself sometimes when we're, I don't know, 15th in... The sport chart that the ones above us are probably bloody all cheating, bloody anyway, yeah. Um, but because I can't see the numbers. Mm. Whereas your radar figures are so massively important in radio, no. your overnights are massively important in TV, and it becomes competitive. There is an element of being competitive within podcasting, but I don't think anyone is really serious about that, mm. if that makes sense. I don't think anybody wants the other person to do badly. Whereas I think, certainly when I was working in radio, you definitely did want other people to do badly because then your radars look better as a result. And and I think that is a natural instinct. Within podcasting, the amount of people who wanted to help us out when we started was really interesting. So having worked at the BBC in your sort of little, little tower where you just work within those people, as soon as we started making this podcast independently, there were guys from Spotify getting in touch with us. And going, oh, look, we're big fans of Ellis and what he does. How can we help you out with this? And that had never happened to me in my career before. You get people getting in touch on LinkedIn going, okay, cool. We've worked with Mike on this. Can we publish half of an episode on our feed and point towards your stuff? And you're like, what, you want us to be good? You want us to be successful? And i would not experienced that at all. So recently we started doing some guest episodes. And we pulled together just a list of people who it would be ace to have as guests. So people who we really like because we don't, well, at the moment, I might regret this in about a year's time, but at the moment we don't want to be on the promo sort of wagon of interviews because we'd much prefer it to be an organic thing. And, again, listen back to this in a year's time and go, Steph, you've had a guy (laughs) on just talking about a film the other day. (laughs) and I'm, I'm happy to have changed my opinion. But we emailed all those people. So guys like Greg Jenner, Josh Widdicombe, Richard Herring, you know, real, what we think are big hitters within the podcast world and people who could quite easily not have seen that email and quite easily not have bothered to reply to that email. But within like a minute, all of them had replied going, yeah, cool. Well, no one asked for a fee. Mm -hmm. No one asked for anything in particular to happen as a result of that. And they've all made time within their schedules. And, you know, sports so like Sam Warburton does a great podcast with the Crowd Network. Geraint Thomas does one as well. And they're two sort of big-hitting sports people. And, again, within, like, a minute of these emails landing, they were like, cool, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. When? Yeah, I can make an, I can free up an hour and a half in my schedule to talk nonsense yeah. for you lot. And that wouldn't have happened. You know, having done guest booking on radio and having done it on, you know, TV shows as well, it's really hard. And people want fees, and people want this, and they want that, and that's not the case within this sector. And I find that fact. I don't know what you found, sort of within podcasting compared to other stuff you've done. Is it yeah. similar?
0: Yeah, far more collaborative at the moment. My theory is it's purely because of the immaturity of the of the profession, to be honest with you. And I think that is something mm. that that collaborative nature, that willingness to help people out, and not feel like you're against the world. I think it's something that's really important to hold on to as an industry, but at the same time, I think the more money that appears in it, the more big hitters that kind of enter the podcasting space, the more difficult that becomes at the same time.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I heard a little bit of... Adam Buxton taking the piss out of uh, Louis Theroux for sort of invading his world. I think it was on one of their Christmas episodes or something like that. And he's going, come on, let me have this thing, man. Why are you getting involved in the podcast? Dude? This was my thing. You've got TV. You've got books. Come on. Do you know there's any disadvantages to
0: that kind of, that, that collaborative, uncompetitive, maybe, I, I won't call it less professional nature, but that kind of vibe. <laughs> I, I, differently professional
1: um yeah, i, yeah, think, yeah, that's I, I think i think that they can be yes because i think that you know even entering into the sort of guest world i'm fully aware that there's a sort of echo chamber circle there as well so you know richard herring had us on his podcast it really gave us a big leg up by doing that and we've had richard on ours and there is this sort of little circle then of appearances, isn't there? Mm. And that does happen a lot. So if you're, I don't know, if you're into off-menu, Parenting Hell, Richard Herring, and this is not a criticism of any of those podcasts, okay? But guests will appear on all three of those. Sure. Is that bad? Not really, because I tend to like the people who they like, so it's fine. But I think that there is, there's definitely a circle then of people bouncing around different pods, But I don't necessarily see that as a negative. I like if I like Adam Buxton, Richard Herring, and Scroobius Pip, and they're all on something together. That doesn't make me feel sad, Mm. or it doesn't make me feel that they're in this constant, endless loop. If one of them's on the other's podcast, I love it, and I think I think that people who are into that thing would similarly like it. I might be wrong, Mm. but I think that might be a negative that people from the outside would see going, oh, yeah, but it's just a bunch of people just talking to themselves and they all love themselves. Yeah. I, I don't know. But I'm I'm always open to, you know, we used our feed when Danny Wallace started his pod. Danny just got in touch and said, I was starting this pod. Mike's a guest on it at some point. And we were like, cool, send us an episode. We'll stick it up. Same with mm-hmm. um, Joe Marler's pod with Crowd Network guys, the Always Audio guys, when John Robbins started The Moon Underwater, similar stuff where we just went, cool, send us half an episode and we'll stick it on our feed, you know, whatever kind of reach we have. And sometimes our audience don't like that as well. Mm. So sometimes our audience are like, well, what are you putting this up for? We don't like that.
0: It might feel different being in the world that you're in where you are in that circle of people with The Adam Buxtons Mm. and the Josh Whitacombs and the John Robinsons of this world Mm. to maybe if you were outside of that. But I think it's a common factor across podcasting as a whole. It just has different levels to it. So although someone starting out who has no social media profile, no public recognition and a podcast with 10 listeners would Mm. probably struggle to get John Robbins on their podcast. But at the same time, there's a kind of circle around them who would be willing to collaborate and willing to kind of.
1: Lift up, and it's 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 a nice part of the medium at the moment. I think it's I think it's an amazing bit of it because we're we're on the outskirts of that gang. I would say, (laughs) I would say, I wouldn't put us firmly set. I mean, Elle and Mike are probably firmly centered with their profiles, so you know I I do understand that, Mm. and I do understand that you know there are some friendships that are involved in that that brings people across as well. But everybody's got a little group. So whatever podcasting you're doing is by its inherent nature, hopefully niche. Yeah, Because it's bloody supposed to be. So if you're a fan podcast about Tottenham, your chances of getting someone from the biggest fan podcast about Tottenham, pretty high, I mm-hmm. think. And then your chances of someone listening to that and developing your listenership as a result. I, I think that it is a very collegiate industry. And I, th- I think it's positive yeah having worked in some vipers nests <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> within <remember>. radio <laughs> within yeah
0: and on that note steph thank you very much for your time on today's voice work sound business <laughs> on, that, on that bit
1: of positivity <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
0: lovely to speak to you and get some of your uh, experience That's... and know-how and uh, really enjoyed uh, chatting to you and good luck with whatever the future holds for socially distanced and your other projects too thank you very much really appreciate it Thank you so much to Stefan for his time on today's VoiceWorks Sound Business. Really interesting chat. There's a lot of further reading and further listening from that conversation. The links to everything that was mentioned you will find in the podcast description. If this is your first time listening to VoiceWorks Sound Business, it's not always like this, but it is always an insightful conversation about the past, present and future of audio, covering the latest news, the best insights and some of the most brilliant people within the industry. So make sure you are following or subscribe to this podcast now wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like a conversation about your audio strategy, you know it ahead. Voiceworks.ai.